got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in the book of Philippians this morning. Philippians chapter 4, it's all the way at the very end. These are some of the last words that Paul writes in this letter. and uh, I'll mention it again in the sermon, but just to give you a little bit of context about what Paul's talking about at the beginning of this passage is Paul's in prison. And so he's writing to a church that's concerned about his imprisonment. And so uh, we pick up in uh, chapter 4, uh, verses 10 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord for you, his church, this morning. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me pray together. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet, and it is a light unto our path. And Lord, I pray this morning, I am a sinful man with sinful lips. And so Lord, as I proclaim your word, Lord, would you hide me behind your cross, that only you might be seen and glorified. Lord, would your spirit come and would it open our hearts to see you anew and see you as the generous God that you are. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to tell me if you've seen this scene before. So it's Thanksgiving Day, and your family's all over at the house, right? You might be mashing the potato and getting the green bean casserole ready to go. You got somebody else who's in the other room trying to get the turkey or the ham uh, ready to go, and you got about three dishes that are in the oven at the same time, and you're trying to balance the other five dishes that you're having for Thanksgiving. They're sitting up on the stove, and you're just trying to make sure nothing's burnt while the kids are all going crazy in the other room, right? Uh, and so you call them in. You're like, hey, we just need you to get the napkins and the silverware ready. So you get, I mean, the house is just crazy, but then you get it all done, and you lay it out on the table, and you are just so proud. You're like, I put in so much work for this Thanksgiving. You have a really thoughtful Thanksgiving prayer, uh, and then you say, all right, kids, go ahead. You go first, and so the first person up is your five-year-old, and the five-year-old looks at just the glorious spread that you've put out for them to enjoy, and you're just so excited, and they look at the turkey, and they look at the ham, and they walk right past it, and you're like, that's fine. They're, they're probably just going to enjoy all the sides we've made. And they look at the sweet potato casserole, and they walk right past it. And they look at the green beans, and they walk right past it. And they look at the mashed potatoes, and they walk right past that. They walk past the collards, and they walk right past that. Until they get to the bread rolls. And their face lights up. They take three bread rolls. And out of the entire line of food that you had prepared for them, they walk back to the table, totally content with their three bread rolls, promising that they're going to come back for more, right? I don't know if I've ever seen a more discontent human being than the mother and the grandmother who put together this whole spread for their child to take three bread rolls. And how do I know this? Well, I was that child, and my grandmother has never let me hear the end of it. Contentment is a funny thing, isn't it? What does it mean to be content? 
And when I bring up the word content, hopefully what's going through your mind is you're thinking maybe back to those family moments, those family moments or those friend moments when you're laughing, you're having a good time, there's not a care in the world, right? I think about Thanksgiving with my in-laws and uh, just this pile of food that my mother-in-law puts on our table from turkey and ham to her famous chicken and dumplings. And I think about uh, being content because she's such a generous host. She thinks about everything that we could ever need. So all I have to do when I show up uh, to their house for Thanksgiving is just to relax and enjoy. Because the generous host of my mother-in-law has thought about everything. Those are the moments when I feel the most content, when I'm relaxed and at rest, and I don't feel a need for anything. But when I think about contentment, what follows right behind that are moments of discontent. And I somehow find myself maybe thinking about those things more. When I think about, am I content? I oftentimes think about the times when I don't have what I need. That something that I wanted to happen didn't happen the way that I wanted it to happen. Right? I don't have the, the things that I want. That relationship didn't pan out quite the way I wanted it to. And oftentimes I feel like more often than not, when I start thinking about living contently, I start thinking about things where I'm discontent. Because I just oftentimes don't feel like I have that feeling, that feeling that I'm content, that I'm relaxed, and everything I have I need, and that I'm at rest. Which is why when we come to Philippians chapter 4 this morning, I'm kind of staggered by the claim that Paul makes. Right? That Paul writes that I have learned in whatever situation that I am in to be content. I have learned in whatever situation that I'm in to be content. And why does that stagger me so much? Well, he's talking about contentment not as an experience that you chase. Because oftentimes I feel like that's how we view contentment. It's just we need to get all the things in the right order and so we can feel content. We can feel relaxed and at rest. But Paul's not talking about contentment that way. He's talking about contentment as a learned thing. That he's learned how to do it. That it's not an experience you chase, but it's a reality that you learn. And so this morning as we come to the letter in Philippians, and remember that Paul is in prison. He's in a cold, damp prison cell where he's been bruised and beaten for preaching the gospel, and he's saying these kinds of things that I've learned in all situations to be content. And so what I want us to do this morning is I just want us to ask the question, what does Paul know? What has Paul learned that gives him that sense of contentment in the prison cell? And I think it's this that Paul has learned that God, his father, is a generous host. That God, his father, is a generous host. That in the presence of God, he has all he needs. That he has everything abundantly. Even though sitting in a prison cell, it may not seem like it on the outset. Paul knows this not to be an experience that he's been chasing, but a reality that he's learned. So I want us to talk about this morning. How did Paul come to understand God, his father, as a generous host? And how might, as we think of him in the same way, how might that just transform everything about us uh, to where we can be like Paul in the valleys of life and say, you know what? I have learned in all situations to be content. So I think three things that Paul sees. And the first thing is that Paul has learned to see scarcity as abundance. 
Paul has learned to see scarcity as abundance. And I want us to go back to Genesis 2 and 3. Uh, I want us to kind of hang out there for the first point because I think this is really important because Genesis 1, 2, and 3 basically set the biblical imagination for every author that comes after it. So they, this is something that Paul is constantly thinking about as he's writing his letter, letters to the Romans, letters to the Galatians. He's thinking about Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And so uh, the passage that John read for us this morning uh, as it starts, it's talking about a lot of geographical information, so you probably may be zoning it out. But I hope that what you picked up on is in the middle of you know, the Genesis account, talking about the rivers that are flowing and how many rivers there are, I hope you notice that uh, it starts talking about the resources of the land, that there's gold there, that there's bdellium there that there's onyx stone. And maybe you even caught it when he starts talking about the gold, that he says the gold of the land was good, right? And if you jump back just a chapter, you remember God talking about creation and every time he creates something, he says it's good. The same thing is attributed to the gold of the land in Genesis chapter two. And then if you read Genesis chapter two, you start to say, and God gave man all the trees of the garden to eat from, everything that they needed except for the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what Genesis 2 is trying to do is, one, it's talking about the creation of mankind, but it's also trying to paint a picture of an abundance that God has given all things to mankind, right? And it's all good, and it's all lavish, right? And then it comes to Genesis 2, 28, when God gives the command, says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it, right? God has created all of this abundant beauty and goodness, and he's given it to us and said, go, take it. This is mine, but I want you to use it. I want you to create. I want you to build. What Genesis 2 is trying to communicate to you is God is an abundant God. God blesses his creation. God loves his creation. God fills it. And then Genesis 3 comes along, right? You get to Genesis 3, and the serpent comes, and I love the first question that the serpent asks Eve, right? He says, did God really say that you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Right? And what that's supposed to trigger in our mind as we're reading this story is that what is described so lavishly in Genesis chapter 2 is then questioned by the serpent. It's questioned by the serpent. Has God really given you everything you need? Right? Let's, let's take an example. See that fruit there? That fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil? You see, God knows that if you eat of that fruit, you'll be like God. Right? Knowing good and evil, you'll know things that only God knows. And if God was an abundant and generous God, wouldn't he want you to have that kind of knowledge? Right? God wouldn't be generous if he would, would withhold anything from you. Right? And what happens is that Adam and Eve hear that and they believe the lie and they eat the fruit. Right? And what was the lie that they believed? Well, that God actually, rather than creating a world of abundance, he had created a world of scarcity. Right? That it is your job, mankind, to earn your keep, to be shrewd enough, to be smart enough, to get the stuff that you need, rather than this being a world of abundance where God wants to lavishly bless you. You see, God is a God, the lie goes, that wants to withhold from you, that wants to keep things from you, right? And they believe that lie. And if you read the Old Testament, 
Over and over again, this story goes, right? You go to Babel. They want to build a tower that can reach the heavens so that they can be like God, right? Egypt, right? All the kings of Israel wanting the power. It's insecurity. It's human pleasure. It's power hungriness. Ancient empires rise and fall over this. Immorality and human pleasure keep becoming central of what it means to be humans because we have to enjoy ourselves. We have to get what we want for ourselves, right? The world is not your friend, so the lie goes. It's not set up for you to thrive. And the God who created it, maybe more than anything else, the God who created it, the lie goes, can't be trusted, right? He withholds from you. So how do you live in that kind of world? Well, you need to work, you need to earn, you need to pursue, and you're always gonna have that nagging voice in the back of your head with anything. Well, I don't have enough. I don't have what I could have. And what does that do to the human heart? Well, it just says you can never settle, can never rest. See, this lie of scarcity from Genesis chapter three destroyed God's good world And it also destroyed our sense of belonging in God's family. I think back to Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's describing the characteristics of what a disciple is. And he goes, you know, see the lilies of the field? See the sparrows that fly above you? Right? If the Lord dresses the flowers and feeds the sparrows, how much more does your heavenly father care for you? You see, part of what it means to be a disciple Part of our holiness, part of our set-apartness is our contentment in the face of a lie of scarcity, right? That we are content even though the world tells us time and time again that blessing is scarce, that God is not a God who withholds, but God is a God who's abundant, that generously gives to us, right? God hasn't put us here to struggle and to enjoy watching us struggle, but he longs for us to thrive in abundant goodness and flourishing, Right? He's given us everything we need. Now, maybe not everything we want, but he's given us everything we need. And so the first thing that we have to do when we're reflecting on Paul's statement about being content is we have to reflect on where are the places where we are tempted to fall into this trap that the world is a place of scarcity? Where are the places where we say, you know what? God's blessings are few here, or God doesn't really care about this place, so I need to constantly earn, I need to constantly seek, I need to constantly almost fend for myself. Places where I've seen it in my life, when you start talking about your future, how do you talk about it? What's your tone? Do you talk about it with hope? It's like, you know what? I don't know what God has in store, but I trust that God is abundantly good and he's gonna lead us to a place where we need to be. Or do you talk about it with dread? As if though you have no control and you don't believe that where you're going because it's an unknown, you don't believe that it could potentially be good. Right? Think about you know, your business or your job. Right? Things don't go well one week or one quarter. You begin to feel discontent with what's happening or maybe what you're receiving for the efforts that you're putting in. Right? You're not getting what you want. Maybe anger and relationships are starting to break down because you're becoming selfish in what you want and people may not be doing what you uh, say. Right? Relationships are becoming power games and cynical. You see the lie we have to face is that God is never equal to our need. That's not true. God is always equal to our need and we have to pray and we have to invite him to meet us here, right? From Genesis chapter two, the Bible is screaming at us. God is a God of abundance. He has blessed his creation. And what sin has done is it has veiled our eyes from seeing the glory 
and the beauty and the lavish blessing that God wants to put on his creation, right? Instead, we go believing that, you know what? God's blessing is scarce. And our hunger for more leads us away from who Christ is, right? We see scarcity not as a world of scarcity, but out of the true lens that God's world is a God designed to be abundant, right? So that's the first thing that Paul understands as he's saying this, but then coming back to Philippians chapter four, uh, the first thing that we see is that he sees challenges as opportunities, so Paul, in order to be content, he sees a challenge as an opportunity. And so what I find so like, fascinating about this passage and what Paul says is that in the midst of all the things going on, in the midst of being brought low, in the midst of sitting in the prison cell, in a cold, damp prison cell, not getting to do the ministry that he's uh, been called to in the way that he probably thinks he probably should be doing it, Paul doesn't spite God. Paul doesn't somehow think that, God, you haven't kept up your end of the bargain. Rather, Paul sees this situation that he's in, one, he expects it, and two, it's something that's an opportunity. And I want to just maybe take a, a side trail here for a second. I think one of the major trip-ups with religion, when you're talking to a non-Christian, one of the major trip-ups uh, with whether there's a God or not, uh, this isn't necessarily a rational or a logical argument with most people. Uh, but whether somebody believes in God or not is oftentimes an emotional answer. It's an emotional response, right? It's not, I don't believe in God because I have reasons and facts to believe it. It's almost as if when you're talking to somebody like this, they don't want to believe in God because they don't want to believe in God. And oftentimes, most of the reasons they'll give you is blaming God for life circumstances, right? I've heard people say things like this, God, I shouldn't have to experience the suffering, Right, God, I should have, because I've worked hard enough, I should have more than I do. Right, God, you shouldn't have allowed this or that to happen. I think about uh, just a few weeks ago, there was a woman on the U.S. Uh, national team who was finishing up her career in her final game. It's the championship game. It seems like it's written to the storybook ending. She tears her ACL in the first few minutes. And in her press conference, she says, you can't believe there's a God because a God wouldn't allow this story to end like this. Right, that's how people think. Right? And it goes against that nature of God as an abundant God. So what's happening here is what's happening is it's the lie of the garden, right? That God, yeah, says on the outside that he's for you, but actually he's withholding from you. And what it leads us to believe is, you know what? God's not a generous host, but he's actually a snake who's crafty and deceitful. Notice the play there, right? We become discontent with God because we see life's challenges almost as a uh, verdict on God that God is not faithful to provide uh, and be with us. That if God was a generous host, he wouldn't allow us to struggle, right? But Paul doesn't see it that way. See, Paul sees these moments not as failures on God's part, but as intentional opportunities. And here's what I want us to understand, that God, as a generous host, he will often test us. He will often test us. And I say that, and some of you can't put generous host and testing in the same sentence. That, that doesn't compute, right? Uh, because testing implies, you know what, you're tricking me or you're trapping me. And I go back to high school when I had an English teacher who I would take a multiple choice test and they would put three answers that were normal answers and then they would put all of the above or none of the above as the final two answers. And I'm sitting there going, there's no shot because I feel like I'm constantly being tricked 
or trapped. And that's kind of been our connotation when we think about the word testing. But tests, when they're of God, not of the world, but when they're of God, they are never designed to trick or trap you. Never designed to do that. But they're designed to give you an opportunity. They're designed to put us out of our comfort zone. Maybe a moment when God takes something away from us that we love, when he allows for us to experience a challenge. What it does is it's going to bring your faith to the fore. It's going to show you who you really are, and it's going to show you where you want to go. It's the same as when we talk about the spotlight on somebody. It doesn't change them. It just brings out who they truly are, right? To give you an example of a challenge as an opportunity, when I was in Orlando, uh, I had a couple uh, students who would go up to this camp in North Carolina, uh, and they would do this for years. So they would go five, six, seven years, and uh, you were, while you were at this camp, you were put into a tribe and you had ranks. So every year you would go back, you would kind of rise up the ranks. And so it was this big deal. They would come back really happy about their rank and what they were rising to. But there was one last rank before you got to the top level. But before you got to the top level, this camp had this uh, tradition where they, they called it tapping you out. Uh, and they would call out the, the students who were ready uh, to move on to this next rank and they would test them. And so part of this test, the boys would tell me, is they, they would call you out, and then you had to go run to the top of the mountain together. And then you had to camp on top of the mountain, and you had to keep a fire going all night. Uh, and then after the fire, you would come back down, and then you had to write an essay. Uh, and then after this essay, you had to do hard labor in the camp all day long. And all of this had to be done without saying a word. So it's a 24-hour testing. And I remember boys would talk about this test years in advance. They were so excited. And yet it was funny. None of them ever told me that they enjoyed doing this kind of test. But what they enjoyed was the fact that this was an opportunity for them to prove themselves. This was an opportunity for them to prove to themselves, their friends, and those they loved that, you know what? They could do it. They had grown and prepared and they were able to do it. And I think that's an echo of God's pattern with us. Right? That sometimes we want God's generosity. That God's a generous God. That means he's going to give us everything we need all the time. And there's absolutely nothing we need at all. No, nothing to hurt us. Nothing to restrict us. Nothing to stand in our way. Right? We want him to sprinkle that prosperity, that ease, that health, that wealth. And just make it easy. Right? But God is not just generous with you so that you can maintain a status quo. Meaning God's not trying to throw you blessings so that you can stay where you are. But God's generosity extends to the fact that he wants you to call you. He wants you to be more than you deserve. Right? I think God's generous love is shown in this, that he took broken, sinful, traitorous people, and he invited them to his table. And he said, you know what? I can still work with that. I still love you. I still welcome you here. I still see you as more as what you see for yourself. And so I'm going to fashion you. I'm going to transform you. I'm going to shape you into who I'm calling you to be. See, God's generous love isn't just so that you can stay where you are, but God sees more for you than you see sometimes for yourself. And he wants to train you, equip you, transform you. And you know what? Sometimes that requires challenges. Sometimes that requires challenges so that we know we can take a step forward. But you see, God is not doing it to antagonize you. God's not doing it to step in your way, but God is delighting in it because in every challenge he's using, as Romans 8, 28 says, all things for your good. All things for your good and to fashion you 
into one who reflects Christ to the world. You see, Paul can be content because he knows that God is not wasting the moments in the prison cell. But that what Paul wants is to be made into the image of Christ, and that's exactly what God's doing, even in the joyful moments, but also in the valleys as well. So he sees challenge as an opportunity, and then finally, Paul sees dependence as provision. And I think that gets us to the most famous passage in Scripture, uh, Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ uh, who strengthens me. And so my question this morning is, why would Paul connect that to contentment? What connects that to contentment? Well, the secret to contentment is not found in our own strength or ability, but it's found in what Christ, who strengthens us, what he brings to the table. And I think it's funny. When we talk about following God, oftentimes what we'll say is, you know what, like that was all God. Like I'm so thankful for all that God's doing in my life. When we do something good and people start to praise us, we're like, oh, that was all God. But I don't know about you, but I feel sometimes like, you know, practically speaking, I always think of these things as kind of like a 50-50 split, right? Where it's like, you know, that was my idea, but you know what, I had some help from God. Like, I know that what God's word said, so that like pushed me in the right direction, right? But like, I thought to do that. Like, I did it myself, right? And sometimes that leads us to think of God like a coach, God like an advocate, like God's giving you the advice, right? God's giving you kind of the direction to go, but like, you need to go do it yourself, right? Right? God's strengthening is kind of him kind of giving you the bump to do it along the way, right? I had a coach that uh, when I was learning how to play golf, uh, he said, I can tell you what to do, but I can't do it for you. And sometimes we get God in our minds like that. That God gives us his word and he's like, all right, I've told you what to do and I'm strengthening you with my word and now go do it. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Because if that's what Paul's talking about here, then I could totally understand why people come to church and then leave. Because then God's just a glorified life coach. There's nothing life transformative about that kind of power that God would just give you a little spiritual boost, that the gospel says, ah, yeah, you're great, and then send you on your way and you're strengthened. That's not what Paul's talking about. I think what Paul's talking about in his mind is he's thinking Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. And this life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? It's not God as the coach. God is the spiritual boost and says, here, go on away. Paul sees himself as dead in Christ and raised with Christ. It is no longer Paul who lives, but Christ in him. The strengthens is not just a, a little boost, but it is solely the power of resurrection from the dead that we can live unto Christ because we have died with Christ and our souls are hidden with him. Christ empowers everything about us, not just part of us, everything about us. If you go look at strengthens in the Greek, strengthens is the word dunamis, which is where we get dynamite from, right? And dynamite's not just a small little explosion, right? It is an all-encompassing, powerful moment when it explodes, right? That's what Paul is envisioning. Not, I can do all things through Christ who gives me, you know, a little, you know, knock on the shoulder, says, go get him, tiger, right? God has raised us from the dead. He, our lives are hidden with him. His spirit fills us to every moment of our lives, right? We are dependent 
upon the power of God just for every day and every moment. And sometimes I don't allow myself to think like that because I'm too proud. I don't want that to be true. But when I do come to that place where I'm like, I need God. And oh, by the way, I see that God has come and he's filled me. That's the place of contentment, right? I'll close with this. Uh, we're doing a baptism at 11 o'clock for uh, little baby Ellis Newbauer. And one of the things I love about baptisms is uh, the dependence and the need that's represented there, right? Because one, you can't baptize yourself. You need somebody to baptize you. But also in the same breath, like when we celebrate a baptism, what we're reminded of is it's not you, right? We're not celebrating, well, I have figured it out. I have had the power to follow Jesus, or I have followed God and I've done it really well. We're celebrating me today. That's not what we're celebrating when we're doing a baptism. Rather, we're celebrating a God who is so generous to say, you know what, you had nothing, but now you have everything. But you know what, you were not my people, but you know what, you were not so far off as to not be welcomed back into my family. You're mine. And I graciously bless you and give you and put my name on you. See, God is a generous host. And he's a generous host because not only does he want us to see this world as a place of abundance, but he calls you to way more than you sometimes allow yourself to think. That he loves you. He wants to fill you and strengthen you, not just with little, you know, pep talks, but with the spirit empowering us to live every moment differently and in the light of Christ, right? That is a generous God, right? One who calls us and welcomes us. That's a generous host, and in all things. That's the God that I think allows us to be content. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for being a generous host, being that God who loves us, that created this world to be abundant. And Lord, I pray that you would remove the sinful scales from our eyes, that we'd be able to see your abundance and your goodness and your blessing, even uh, the ways in which you're working in the, the hard seasons as well, Lord. And I pray that this morning that we wouldn't just come for just a little bit of your strengthening, but that it would fill all of us, that we would truly be crucified with you so that we might be raised with you to new life. Lord, we thank you that you are a generous host. I pray this in Jesus' name.